morning. Great to be with you this morning. Good morning to all those guests who are here in the room. Great to have you. If you're a guest with us on the live stream, uh, welcome to you as well. If you're watching this on demand later, it's great to have you this morning. Six, six more days till Christmas. Are you ready? Some people. Are you ready, Pastor Todd? I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready in the sense that uh, Cheryl has, has made everything ready. Yeah. Emily too, for us. So, But basically, that's... Cheryl and Emily are the same person. Exactly. Thankful yeah. for our wives. Amen. Thankful for our wives. Amen. Well, this is uh, the final message in our series, Is Christmas Unbelievable? And over the last four weeks, we've really sought to understand more of the Christmas story, understand what it truly is and what it isn't, analyze it, and uh, to seek to understand why it's so important in our lives. And this uh, final message, Pastor Todd, you are up to unpack for us the question of why does an accurate understanding of the Christmas story really matter? Yeah, do you want to talk about the book and the videos? Yes, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we found another case of books, everyone. We found another full case. So if you don't have a copy personally, or if you're looking to get some copies into other people's hands, make sure you grab those on your way out. Uh, make sure you give them out to people as well. It's a great opportunity for you to enter into intentional conversations about Christmas, about the gospel, yeah. of course, as we've been talking about over the last four weeks. Uh, so take full advantage of that. We don't want to have any books left over. So right. take as many as you would like to give out to people, as long as you promise to actually give them out. Right. And then, as we mentioned, this is the last message in our series. So if you missed any of the other three messages, or if you want to share the series with someone else, you can go to harvestberry.ca slash Christmas and see all of the messages right there. Okay, so uh, let's fire this up. Last message of this series. Uh, I love actually the way that Rebecca opens up this last chapter of her book. She writes, the story of Christmas isn't just a good story in our heads. It is a true story that happened in history. And of course, that story has implications for us. It really, it really matters, doesn't it? It sure does. And, and the big question for this final message, building off of everything that we've heard of so far is, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. we've, we've looked at all this information with respect to the nativity store, but what does it matter that we believe that this is a true story, that the nativity actually uh, happened? And uh, so far we've dealt with, like in chapter one, message one of this series, is Jesus a real person? Then we talked about the reliability of the gospel accounts so that we could trust the story that's being told to us. And then in message three, chapter three of the book, we talked about the miracles and we focused especially in on the virgin birth and saw why that was so important to believe. And so now we're asking the questions, an overarching question, why does all of that even matter to us? That's right. And like what we said off the top was that the purpose of this series was to really understand what is true and what is not true about Christmas. But more than that, this series really has been a call to faith for us, right? It's mm -hmm. been a call for us to believe that these things are actually true. Yeah, and that's actually what's at stake here. What's at stake is not the reliability of the gospel, but then the application of that to our lives in terms of how that impacts our, our faith and our, and our lives. And so if the nativity isn't true, if the nativity is not true, if it's just a nice story, then as McLaughlin says, we don't just lose the magic of Christmas, we lose everything. We lose life and meaning, good and evil, even you and me. And so she's gone, I don't know if you're poker players or anything, probably not. But she's gone all in. She's pushed all her chips into the middle of the table. She's gone all in on this proposition that the nativity story actually matters. Yeah, so we're, in a sense, going all in. We're not phoning it in here with this last message the week before Certainly Christmas. Certainly not. We're going right after it. We're going in deep. So coming out of all of that, then here's our first question for yeah. this morning. Does humanity have a moral foundation apart from God? 
Yeah, that's a that's a big issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Christian apologists talk about it. Philosophers talk about it. Those who study natural history and and all of the other disciplines, uh, atheists talk about it. All those who are on the opposite side of Christianity have to talk about it. They have to grapple with this question: is is you know this this question of whether or not there's a moral reality, a moral foundation outside of Christianity, outside of of God. So I want to introduce you, and McLaughlin takes us to this, this man's writings. His name is Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli historian. He rejects Christianity, and it's important to remember that. We're going to come back to him a few times. But despite that, he, he wrote some really interesting things. I'm going to paraphrase a few things, then I'll quote him directly in just a moment. But in, in essence, he wrote that the influence of Christianity, even though he rejects Christianity, he said the, the influence of Christianity cannot be denied. And he says, in fact, that our, our morality as human beings is based on biblical principles. It's kind of surprising to hear mm -hmm. that a person who rejects Christianity nevertheless says that our morality as human beings is based on biblical principles and that they are not as humanists and rationalists or atheists would proclaim. They are not self-evident truths. In other words, Human beings just have a naturally built-in morality. And he uses a couple of very specific examples around this. First of all, he talks about, really, they're, they're the same. Human rights, or we could put it this way, the equality of all human beings. And he says that human rights and the equality of human beings, that is not self-evident, but is in fact rooted in Judeo-Christian morality or a biblical ethic. Now, Harari is saying that. He's a non-believer. We, of course, hear that and we go, yeah, we affirm that. We know that to be absolutely true. Now, here's a direct quote from him. The idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. If we do not believe in the Christian myths, and remember, he's a non-believer, so he's going to use that word. If, do not believe, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are and we would say it means nothing. We would agree with him. Our identity as human beings is actually fixed by the fact that we have been created by God and in his image. Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that impacts everything about us. And that's, and that's kind of what we spent time talking about last week when we established that, that the miracles like the virgin birth are rooted and founded in creation. Right. But what we're saying here now is that creation doesn't help us just understand how human beings were created, but more importantly, or I should say just as importantly, creation helps us to understand how human beings ought to be treated as well. Right. Everything about our lives is rooted in the creation. Ultimately, everything comes back to how humanity came to be mm. for the creation. And if you're a humanist, or, you know, we all recognize the name Charles Darwin, an evolutionary naturalist, um, or if you're a rationalist, all of these would be philosophical systems that stand in contrast to Christianity. If you embrace any of those philosophical systems, then what you're really looking for is an explanation of all this that does not include God. But our premise is, if you go there, then you now have no moral authority whatsoever. So we come back to the example that Harari used about equality. 
the principle of equality. On what basis do we believe that all human beings are equal, regardless of, for example, regardless of ethnicity or gender or age or health or socioeconomic status? Because if there's no God who's actually defining all of this for us, then these are just human opinions. It's just our opinion that all races, all ethnicities are equal. It's just our opinion that age is irrelevant, that all people should be created equally, and so on. And Harari also said this. He said, homo sapiens have no natural rights. Any homo sapiens in the crowd today? Any homo sapiens? There's a few of you who actually aren't sure that you're actually <laughs> homo sapiens. Might be a few Neanderthals here this morning. I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe. But anyways, he said, Harari said, homo sapiens have no natural rights, mm. just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. And this is the struggle that non-Christian philosophers have in trying to explain everything and make it make sense. And uh, you, you'll remember the name probably too, um, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, he famously declared this in 1883, God is dead. To which God replied, love the meme, you know, to which God replied in 1900, Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> and, and, and while we're here, the, like the funny thing about this, as I was like looking for this meme, which I knew existed before, I was looking for that. I, I found this one, which is, I think, a little bit better for Christmas. You know, Nietzsche said, God is dead. Jesus said, God is dad, which I thought was kind of cool. And then, uh, P.S., Nietzsche is dead, uh, God. So that's kind of funny, that's right? Funny. That's funny. 11 o'clock laughed a little bit more than 9 o'clock. Just a little bit. Yeah, just not, not, not much more. <laughs> you know we compare services, right, to see which services, you know. Response you know that happens, best. right? Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Anyways, let's hear from Nietzsche. So he said God is dead. He, that makes him, that statement in 1883 actually makes him one of the most famous atheists of all time because mm. he makes this, like, super bold declaration about the status of God. Here's what Nietzsche says about all of this. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, faith in God, one breaks the whole. So in other words, you can't like just take the morality out of Christianity, apply it to the whole human race and have that work apart from faith, the faith that actually connects us mm. to God. It's impossible to do that. Nietzsche understood that. And that led me to kind of look a little bit at what C.S. Lewis says about all of this. And I love C.S. Lewis, and he was a Christian apologist and uh, so helpful for so many people in understanding the Christian faith. And he wrote in Mere Christianity, again, most of this is just paraphrasing this from Lewis, he wrote that if a supernatural objective standard of right and wrong does not exist outside of the natural world, that is to say, originating with God, then right and wrong becomes a matter of personal choice. Remember before we said it's just a human opinion. So it's just personal choice based on circumstances, based on what's going on in the moment. So that a preference Again, this is Lewis, a preference for this, ethical, for this one ethical standard over another ethical standard is inherently indefensible, and it's, it's as arbitrary as preferring Heinz ketchup over French's. It's just a choice. You have this ethical standard, another human being has a different ethical standard. It's just a difference in ketchup flavors. 
Or it's the difference between one country saying it's better to drive on the right side of the road and another country saying it's better to drive on the left. That's just a, a decision. There's no, in other words, there's no right or wrong depending on the circumstances or the geography or the moment in history or the price of ketchup. This is the flavor I like or this is the side of the road that I drive on. And if you, if you want a really interesting read on this, because I could go on forever about Lewis, oh, yeah. um, but if you want an interesting read on this, get mere Christianity. The whole first section deals with this actual issue of morality, and he boils it down to this idea that, there, that Lewis would actually say there is a universal morality, but there's also universal depravity in humanity, and that the universal morality that exists is based on what he calls something beyond. In other words, there's something else that this universal morality comes from. The something beyond becomes a somebody, and that somebody, in Lewis's argument, eventually becomes Christ in Christianity, the biblical understanding of all of these things. And so Nietzsche, Lewis, they're all pointing us in the same direction. And then I want to add this without going into a lot of depth, because I feel like all of these paths would lead down to some pretty long discussions. But an additional problem is that, um, that we would have is that a morality without God, again, self-evident humanistic morality, is incompatible with Darwin's survival of the fittest, or what's called natural selection. It's incompatible with that. Because if you're an evolutionary naturalist, it's the smartest and the strongest that survive. It's the smartest and the strongest that survive. And it's the smartest and the strongest who dictate what the morality is. Mm. Not an objective standard. It's whoever's strongest gets to decide what's moral. And so things that we think, maybe someone who thinks that humanity has some kind of inherent morality, they would say, you know, at their core, human beings are kind and loving and, and, and treat each other equally. But we know that to not be true. And we know that with natural selection or survival of the fittest, it's really power and intelligence and beauty that survives. That's natural selection. If you reject Christianity and you're looking for something inside of humanity, that's what you have. The powerful, the beautiful, the intelligent get to set the parameters of what's right and what's moral. And then that was, that was again emphasized by a man by the name of William Golding. Do you remember that name, William Golding? He wrote the book that you probably read in high school, Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. How many people read Lord of the Flies in high school? I'm hearing it's coming off of a lot of high school reading lists, and that's really sad because it has such a, an incredible message for us. But Golding taught us if he taught us anything in Lord of the Flies, it's this, that man left to himself will descend into moral ambiguity at best, but moral brutality at worst. And, and that man will not, left to himself, man will never ascend to higher virtues. He will never ascend to kindness. Man will never on his own ascend to goodness or compassion or mercy or love. Yeah. We will always descend down into the lesser virtues, the brutality. That's our natural tendency. And it's the powerful ones, this comes through so clearly in Lord of the Flies, it's the powerful ones who dictate that. 
And the Bible talks about this clearly. Like I'm thinking about uh, Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Or the classic uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, right? Mm-hmm. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And so an understanding of that, which comes from Scripture, helps us to see that there's really, there's really no surprise that we would come to these kind of conclusions. Mm-hmm that these people would come to these kind of conclusions about morality and where it comes from. Because we, in our sinfulness, are broken. And as a natural byproduct, the way that we look at the world is broken. But the truth of Christ's coming, of course, changes all of that for us. right? And that's what we want to bring it back to here. And I saw this uh, this week from from Glenn Scrivener. And uh, by the way, if if you were watching last week, I quoted his name wrong. And so I'm going to just apologize for that off the bat. It is Scrivener, not Scrivener, which we said last week. But he said this, if natural, I love this, if natural selection means survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest, Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest, Jesus, for the survival of the weakest, us. I love that. It just turns it on its head. Right. It's amazing. Exactly. It is amazing. And, and you know, Jesus's ministry in, in all that he did, in all that and all that he taught and how he treated the people that were on the margins, the cast outs, the, the, the infirmed. I mean, it was revolutionary even back then. Yeah. And it really sets the standard for us. It sets the foundation for all that we would understand about justice and equality. Yeah. And uh, Tom Holland. Um, not Spider-Man. Not Spider-Man. Right. The Brit- different, different, different Tom, Tom Holland. Holland. He's a British historian. He wrote a book called uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And in it, he wrote this. His, speaking of Jesus, his belief in human equality and rights, equality of men and women, love for foreigners, and care for the poor, weak, and marginalized are specifically Christian beliefs. And Holland himself went on this amazing journey of forsaking Christian truth and, and going to believe in mythology, but it wasn't until he recognized that all of these individual humanistic rights, justice, equality, all those different things, are specifically founded in Christianity that he recognized that this is what he needed to believe. Mm-hmm. And he came back to the truth, which is an amazing story, of course. And so let's build on this idea a little bit further than Pastor Todd. We've talked about the foundation for morality, but what about this one? Does life have meaning apart from God? Yeah, this is deeper. You know, we're going to get deeper still into this now because not only can you not have a moral framework apart from God, but now we're going to get to the place where we understand life doesn't even actually have any meaning mm-hmm. apart from God. So back to Harari, who I just want to remind you again, non-Christian historian, okay? Harari says this, as far as we can tell from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goal or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan. Hence, any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just delusional. It's figments of our fertile imaginations. Merry Christmas. (laughs) How dark is that, right? It's it's dark. It's dark and depressing. You can just kind of, you know, Christmas is all like lights and it's beauty and it's it's just a a phenomenal story that makes you feel warm and and nice inside. Not that. And this doesn't, you know, but but this is what he's saying. We live, we die, we're buried, and then we're forgotten. Hmm. And we're not forgotten immediately, not by the 
the generation that's right there, not maybe by the next generation, but by the third or fourth generation. Man, nobody's ever cleaning off your tombstone. They don't remember the sound of your voice or what your face looked like or what you like to do on Sunday afternoon. Like, they don't remember anything about you. And it is a sad reality. Enough time passes, we're completely forgotten as human beings. And, and I get it, like I can hear the objections from some people go like, that's, that's a little dark, it's a little depressing, it's a little too far down the road there. You know, my life has meaning because I do have a nice family and I'm passing a legacy on, and that's a good thing. Yeah. You should pass a legacy on to your kids and grandkids. I give to charity, those charities will survive on after I'm gone. I live well, and by living well, I've influenced the lives of other people, and I know there's a spinoff, a ripple benefit to all of that. Some people like, I wrote this book, it'll survive me after I die. I painted this picture, it'll still be in the museum after I die. I know some people have done things like that. But McLaughlin writes, this is the kind, like all of these things that we tell ourselves, this is the kind of things we, the, the kind of thing we tell ourselves to dull the pain. Mm. This is what we do as human beings. We tell ourselves things to dull the pain. And of course, by that she means the pain of of believing there's nothing after this life, that we're just a collection of cells, and you bring it right down to the basic of what Harari is saying. We're just a collection of cells and chemical processes, nothing more. So if there's no God, we don't live on, and any meaning we ascribe to our lives is delusion. It's kind of like the... Um phrase carpe diem the latin phrase the latin yeah. phrase yeah like you know eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die right live live your life to the fullest because it's all going to be done right. and... like why bother right. living a moral life yeah exactly go out and live it up mm -hmm. drink party yep. be about yourself whatever pleases you go and do it because it's all just going to be over and right because be once it. you're dead you're dead yep Exactly. I mean, there's, there's, there's no reason to not live any other way but carpe diem, yeah. and that, if Harari is true. But that, at its core, is a very depressing way to live your life, isn't it? And, and it doesn't have to be that way, though, it does it? It does not have to be that way. Mm. And as we saw last week, the science, because we talked a lot about science last week, the science behind who we are as human beings does not preclude the fact that God is still our creator. Mm -hmm. and therefore, uh, we have meaning to our lives. Life uh, cannot possibly be simply about physiology. It can't just be about cells and chemical reactions in our brains because we are spiritual beings with eternal soul. And um, one, of my, one of my favorite books of the Bible, I feel like I say that about a lot of books of the Bible, <laughs> but my, one of my favorites is um, Ecclesiastes and uh, among the things that Solomon wrote, I, th I think some of the most profound things that Solomon wrote are in this book of Ecclesiastes. Now, understand, it's a very depressing book. Like, it's a dark book. Mm -hmm. It's probably like 85 or 90% dark and, and maybe 10% yep. uh, you know, light and com communicating some great truths. But Ecclesiastes 3.1 is one of those um, you know, points of light in the book. And, and I love what Solomon writes here. Speaking of God, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, here's the, here's the phrase that I love, he has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, we have inside of ourselves 
a God consciousness or a divine spark. It's inside every human being. We kind of know that we were made for something more than just to live this life physically and you know, then there's nothing. There's more to it than that. And I think we have a sense of that. Also, he has put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, we are eternal beings. God made it so. But there's still a lot about this that's still hard to understand because hmm. we have these finite brains and God hasn't revealed everything uh, to us yet at this point. It comes down to the idea that there's a, there's a God-shaped void in the lives and hearts of every human being yeah. that can only truly be filled with him. That's right. And it's only when it is truly filled with him that we experience the fullness of this life and fulfillment as, it is, as he originally intended. That's right, right. yeah. And so let's continue then. Um, we, how, where do we find meaning and morality then? So let's go to the scriptures and let's go to John chapter 1, which, you know, we know that the, um, as we've been talking about in this series, you know, Matthew and Luke have the big nativity narratives, yep. but we decided. We did. Was it last you week? You did, yes. Or the week before? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we decided John 1 yep. is also a, a nativity passage, but obviously more stylized and, and um, taking us back to the very beginning. John mm -hmm. 1, 1 to 3, for example, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Mm -hmm. And so as John describes it here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when you see the, the Word there, capitalized, that's Jesus. That's, that's literally the Word of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who's the second person of the Trinity. He, verse 14 in John 1 says, He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And verse 17, so that grace and truth would come through Jesus Christ. And for that purpose, this is the end of, of, of verse 17 in John 1, he, Jesus, has made him God known to us. And in fact, listen, listen to the, the rest of this. This is verse 9 through 13, John 1. The true light, and we're going to now push back that darkness we were just mm -hmm. talking about, yeah. this, this depressing scenario that Harari sets up for us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, and that's, that's what it's all about, receiving Jesus, God receiving us, us receiving him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, those verses expose both the hopelessness of life without God, but also the hopefulness of life with Him. One of those ways is dark and desperate, and the other is filled with light and life. And you'd think that with Jesus, you know, becoming incarnate and, and coming to earth and sharing this message with us, becoming us, it, you know, ex allowing us to experience God in the most profound way possible. Our God became human mm -hmm. for us. You would think that with that, that humanity would have welcomed him. This is the answer to all of the longings and all of the darkness and hardship in our life. This is so awesome that our God has done this for us. The reality is, as John 1 says, they rejected him. They did not receive him when he came. 
And that rejection of Jesus Christ, even though we have the Word of God, even though it's proclaimed faithfully, even though we have this holiday where we have this opportunity before a watching world to proclaim this life-changing message, people today, as you know, because you know them, you work with them, you live around them, or in your families, people today still rejecting Jesus Christ and His gospel. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love what what Rebecca McLaughlin goes on to say as she continues this thought a little further. She writes, if there is a God who made us and loves us, that's wonderful news. It means that our lives are meaningful, that there are such things as good and evil, and that justice and love will win in the end. Mm. We're not just debris floating around in a pointless cosmos. We matter. And we matter not because we have decided so apart from God, but we matter because God himself said so. That's right. And so Again, not rooted in us at all. Not rooted in us at all. Rooted in the divine. That's right. That's right. So then this final question, Pastor Todd, what do I need to believe then? Yeah, so, you know, we think about all the wonderful themes of Christmas. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Again, it's a, it's a message of light. It's a baby in a manger. It's just so nice. Gives you all the and warm and fuzzies. It's yeah, all it's the wonderful. warm and fuzzies. Yeah. Everything that's sentimental and traditional and, and all of that. It's like one of the themes that we don't get into at Christmas is judgment. Yep, that's right. Like there's no like, there's no Christmas ornaments that feature judgment. Yeah. Wrath of God on the Christmas tree. Now, you, no, you don't no, see that. No, right. we don't see wrath of God. Yep. In banners, or, or you know, you wouldn't send it like a Christmas card that had a judgment verse in it. Sure. Like you just wouldn't do that, right? right? Yeah. So it's not a theme of Christmas, but it is something we have to talk to, you know, speak to in this moment, because we do like to focus just on the beauty of this, on the sentimentality of the nativity story. It is the most magnificent story ever told. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But we do the gospel. We always do the gospel a disservice if we leave out any part of it. If we don't talk about the hard implications of rejecting the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is putting in front of us, we understand Jesus, is, and this is, this is the stuff people want to talk about. They want to talk about Jesus meek and mild. And people want to talk about Jesus and his love and his compassion and his forgiveness and his kindness to people and how he healed them. These are the things we always want to emphasize about Jesus. And again, particularly at Christmas, because this is a story about a baby, yeah. right? And so we emphasize all of that. We see all of that in him. But he also, in the Gospels, as we're reading all these other things about Jesus, kindness, compassion, love, all of that, we're also hearing Jesus saying some other things that are pretty hard to hear. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll just give you a sampling of, of some of this. Because he often spoke of judgment. He often warned people of dying without being reconciled to God and therefore being under the condemnation of death. First death, which is physical death, and then second death, which is eternal separation from God. Jesus was warning people about that all the time. Luke 16, for example, he talks about judgment in terms of fire. That's where we get the whole idea. When lake of fire is spoken of elsewhere. Jesus talks about that. Matthew 22, he talks about darkness and outer darkness being cast into this darkness for eternity. Luke 6, he talks about uh, the lack of God in our lives as an insatiable hunger. A little bit later in Luke's gospel, he, in verse 16, or chapter 16, he talks about our lack of God as, as, as being an unquenchable thirst, a terrible thirst that can never be satisfied. Matthew 25, he talks about uh, those being locked out of the party. And we're talking about the big party, the mm-hmm. end of the age party, the party you definitely want to be invited to. 
But he talks about there's some people who are locked out of it. And then in, in um, Matthew 18, he talks about being locked into a hopeless prison. And the thing about Jesus is he never equivocates with respect to sin and judgment. He never equivocates on the consequences of sin, judgment, death, eternal separation from God. You know, we don't talk about this at Christmas, but we need to mm -hmm. as we talk here about the gospel. And Jesus is the one who's actually doing the judging. That's the thing we need to remember. Jesus is the judge on the throne. But in this crazy twist, Jesus is willing to take the judgment that he himself is placing on us to take the judgment, our judgment, on himself. That's the offer. You're going to be judged for your sins, but I'm willing to stand in your place and take that judgment on myself. And that can happen if we would only just do two things. Confess and believe. Confess and believe. So the, the question is, what do I need to believe? Well, this is what we need to believe. That the way to a relationship with Jesus Christ is to confess and believe. The Apostle Paul lays it out for us. This is Romans 10, uh, three verses we'll look at here. But if you confess, here's what he says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's the first word. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for with the heart, goes into more detail now, for with the heart one believes and is justified. That's another word for being saved or declared to be righteous before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Then he adds in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's as simple as that, right? It is, it is sola fide, faith alone, in solus Christus, Christ alone. It's that simple. It's, it's not more complicated. It's not more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And so what we must believe in is, is what we've been talking about all along about Jesus and the gospel. Mm -hmm. What we need to confess is that Jesus is Lord and that we're sinners, that, that our, our sinfulness needs to be forgiven by God. And, and you'd think that just even understanding that, that we're sinners, you would think that that would be an easy thing to believe. That each of us would have a good understanding that we have violated God's moral code, that we are not, in essence, good people, that we have sinned, that we would accept that premise as being true for all human beings. And yet, pride gets in the way so that we don't want to admit our own sinfulness. But why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't every one of us be so quick to say, hey, I understand that I'm separated from God by my own sin. But we're challenged there. We're challenged there because of our own pride. And, and we have to accept this no matter the intensity of sin. And our, our challenge as human beings is we, we still want to compare ourselves to other human beings. We want to rank ourselves. We just want to kind of look at the rest of humanity and go, you know, I know for sure I'm at least in the top half. You know, in the, in the spectrum of, of good to vile, I believe I'm at least a top half person. Not the best, not the worst. But the vilest offender, even by human standards of morality, the vilest offender, the vilest offender is not more guilty than you and I 
who are by comparison, by comparison to the vilest offender, by comparison, we are moral people, we are under, uh, upstanding citizens, we are essentially just people. But our sin keeps us from God as much as the vilest offenders. There's not a person here who is good enough for God. We're all sinners, whether we want to admit that or not. And I know many of you. Uncomfortable laughter ripples through the crowd. <laughs> you notice that? I know myself, and you know me. I'm a sinner. Not a person here is good enough for God. That's what needs to be confessed. Don't think that your goodness, that somehow God's weighing it out in scales. Don't think that your goodness is enough. And, and, and further, don't think that, that the church is a place for good people. I mean, I think the reason why some unbelievers don't want to come here is they think that somehow you have to reform yourself before you come here because this is a place filled with good people, with people who have already sorted everything out. I mean, how many times, how many times have you heard this and have we heard this? People would be like, no, no, I can't go into that church because I'll get struck with lightning if I walk in there. Right, right. right. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Because the people that ought to be coming here, like there ought to be people here who have addictions that they cannot overcome. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the place for you. We shouldn't shame anybody who has addictions that they can't overcome. This is where you should be, whatever that addiction is. Don't think that your marriage has to be perfect to come here. If you have a train wreck of a marriage, this is exactly where you need to be this morning. That's right. If your kids are out of control and you don't know what to do with them, welcome to church. If you had a fight before you came here on Sunday, perfect. Welcome to harvest. Welcome to harvest. Whatever it is, whatever your struggle is, if you're a liar, if you're a cheater, if you steal things from your company, this is where you should be. This is a place for broken people who are willing to confess that they're sinners. So, here's what McLaughlin said. This is no self-help book. She's talking about her book now, okay? She says, this is no self-help book to tell you that you're enough. You're not, nor am I. But time and again in the Gospels, the people who knew they weren't good enough for God were the people Jesus welcomed. Mm. Those seen as too bad to be bothered with or too broken to be fixed were Jesus's preferred company. And so the people who fill these chairs, the people who watch this online, are attracted to this ministry and especially to this message should be those who are struggling with all of these things. It should be the people who are wrestling with sin in their lives every day of their lives. Not the smartest, not the prettiest, not the most influential, not the most powerful, not the most popular, not the most successful. And what Jesus said about this, and, and you know, Luke 5 is just a verse I think I like too much, and, I, and it's because, um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I can be sarcastic at times. No. Sarcasm. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, but I've, so because I, I'm someone who loves sarcasm, I love those moments when Jesus is sarcastic. Hmm. And so I think I like this verse too much. 
Because in Luke 5.31, this is what Jesus says about this whole issue. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not, called to, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You hear the sarcasm? The sarcasm is there because no one's well and no one's righteous. If you were to take the sarcasm out of it and read it differently, those who think they are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not, called to come, uh, I have not come to call those who think they're righteous, but sinners to repentance. You just take the sarcasm out and you get it. But Jesus was stinging his listeners. Hmm. No one's well. No one's righteous. But a lot of people think they are. We're all desperately sick, spiritually. We're a mob of misfits. We're a mob of misfits. Right, we use that around here all the time, and it's so true, right? And, and, I, and I love to go on a little bit further with what Rebecca says. She writes, Jesus always welcomed the outsider. Yeah. He protected the weak, healed the sick, and fed the poor. He welcomed prostitutes, touched lepers, held infants in his arms. Although he was God's promised king, he came not to be served, but to serve mm. and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah. And herein lies the wonder and beauty of the Christmas story. That the Son of God would come into his creation to subject himself to all the same things that we experience here on this earth. And then to be unjustly tried and beaten, mocked, scorned, spat upon. To be crucified. To die a death he didn't deserve, but we did. Mm. And to rise again to new life three days later. And not only do we find the forgiveness of sins and freedom from sin and death in this incredible story, but we find our foundation. We find our meaning here. And we find all that is true about this life and in this world, in the baby who was and who is Emmanuel, God with us. The wonderful thing is that God invites us to be a part of the most magnificent story ever told. That's right. It's been all about the story. Mm -hmm. All four weeks of this is about looking at the story, believing the story, letting the story impact our lives. It's been all about the story. God has kindly and lovingly offered to write each one of us into that same story, the most magnificent story ever told. The awesome thing about this story is that it is a story for everyone. People from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And I'm reminded of, uh, we're actually going to listen to this story to wrap things up, but I was reminded of the quote that we mentioned last week from Scott McConnell, who is the executive director of Lifeway Research. And he wrote, of all the Christmas programs churches offer, the most important is simply reading the biblical account of the Christmas story itself. And so that's what we're going to do to close off our time together here and now. We're going to hear the Christmas story. Because that is a story for everyone, we're going to hear that story read in some of the native languages of people in this church family. So turn your attention to the screen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. El origen de Jesucristo fue este. María, su madre, estaba comprometida para casarse con José, pero antes que vivieran juntos, se encontró encinta por el poder del Espíritu Santo. José, su marido, que era un hombre justo y no quería denunciar públicamente a María, decidió separarse de ella en secreto. Ya había pensado hacerlo así, cuando un ángel del Señor se le apareció en sueños y le dijo, José, descendiente de David, no tengas miedo de tomar a María por esposa, porque su hijo lo ha concebido por el poder del Espíritu Santo. María tendrá un hijo y le pondrás por nombre Jesús. Se llamará así porque salvará a su pueblo de sus pecados. Todo esto sucedió para que se cumpliera lo que el Señor había dicho por medio del profeta. La Virgen quedará encinta y tendrá un hijo, al que pondrán por nombre Emanuel, que significa Dios con nosotros. Cuando José despertó del sueño, hizo lo que el ángel del Señor le había mandado y tomó a María por esposa. Y sin haber tenido relaciones conyugales, ella dio a luz a su hijo, al que José puso por nombre Jesús. En el sexto mes, este engel Gabriel, que el Señor gestió, no está en Galilea, pero en el nombre de Nazaret. No a mor, que verlúevas, en el nombre de Joseph, en el nombre de David, en el nombre de mor, was María. En die engel het bij haar binnengekom en gesê, Wees gegroet, benadigde, die Heere is met jou. Geseend is jy onder die vrouwe. En toe sy omsien, was sy baie ontsteld oor sy woord. En sy het daar nagedink, wat hier die groet toch kon beteken. En die engel sê toe vir haar, Moe nie vrees nie, Maria, want jy het genade by God gevind. En kyk, jy sal swanger word. En is seenbaar, en jy moet om Jesus noem. Hy sal groot wees, en die seen van die allerhoogste genoem word. En die Heere God sal aan hom die troon van sy vader David gee. En hy sal koning wees oor die huis van Jacob tot in eeuwigheid. En aan sy koninkryk sal daar geen einde wees nie. Maria het uit Heense so, Dit is my kunnen, Wo hy is tong zen nu, 天使回答说：“圣灵要降临于你，至高者的能力要荫庇你，所以你要生个圣婴，要成为上帝的儿子。你看，你的亲戚伊丽莎白年纪老迈，一向不能生育，现在已经怀了男胎，有孕六个月了
cette époque-là partout un édit de l'empereur Auguste qui ordonna le recessement de tout l'Empire. Ce premier recessement en lieu pendant que Quirinius était gouverneur de Syrie. Tout allait se faire inscrire, chacun dans son, sa village d'origine. Joseph aussi monta de la Galilée, de la ville de Nazareth, pour se rendre en Judée, dans la ville de David, appelée Bethléem, parce qu'il était de la famille et de la ligne de David. Il y a pour se faire inscrire avec sa femme Marie, qui était enceinte. Pendant qu'il était là, le moment où Marie devrait accoucher arriva, et elle mit au monde son fils premier-né. Elle l'enveloppa de linge et le coucha dans une mangeoire parce qu'il n'avait pas de place pour eux dans la salle des autres. Ebu Opolopo ogun orun si darapo mo angeli na ni ojiji mo yin olu olorun wipe ogo ni fun oluwa loki orun ati ni aye alafia ife inu rere si eniyan wala ma madat anhum al malaika ila as sama qala rijal al ru'a ba'dhum li ba'd linadhhab alan ila bayt lahb wanandhur hadha al amr al waqi' alladhi a'lamana bihi ar rabb فجاءوا مسرعين ووجدوا مريم ويوسف والطفل مضطجعا في المدود فلما راوه اخبروا بكلام الذي قيل لهم عن هذا الصبي وكل الذين سمعوا تعجبوا مما قيل لهم من الرعاه واما مريم فكانت تحفظ جميع هذا الكلام مفتكره به في قلبها ثم رجع الرعاه وهم يمجدون الله ويسبحونه على كل ما سمعوه وراوه كما قيل لهم ولما تم الثمانية أيام ليختن الصبي سمي يسوع كما تسمى من الملاك قبل أن حبل به في الأرض Jesus wurde zur Zeit des Königs Herodes in Bethlehem, einer Stadt in Judäa, geboren. Bald darauf kamen Sterndeuter aus einem Land im Osten nach Jerusalem. Wo ist der König der Juden, der kürzlich geboren wurde, fragten sie. Wir haben seinen Stern aufgehen sehen und sind gekommen, um ihm Ehre zu erweisen. Als König Herodes das hörte, erschrak er und mit ihm ganz Jerusalem. Er rief alle führenden Priester und alle Schriftgelehrten des jüdischen Volkes zusammen und erkundigte sich bei ihnen, wo der Messias geboren werden sollte. In Bethlehem in Judäa antworteten sie, denn so ist es in der Schrift durch den Propheten vorausgesagt. Und du, Bethlehem, im Land Juda, du bist keineswegs die unbedeutendste unter den Städten Judas, denn aus dir wird ein Fürst hervorgehen, der mein Volk Israel führen wird, wie ein Hirte seine Herde. Da rief Herodes die Sterndeuter heimlich zu sich und ließ sich von ihnen den genauen Zeitpunkt angeben, an dem der Stern zum ersten Mal erschienen war. Daraufhin schickte er sie nach Bethlehem. 
Geht und erkundigt euch genau nach dem Kind, sagte er, und gebt mir Bescheid, sobald ihr es gefunden habt. Dann kann auch ich hingehen und ihm Ehre erweisen. Mit diesen Anweisungen des Königs machten sie sich auf den Weg, und der Stern, den sie hatten aufgehen sehen, zog vor ihnen her, bis er schließlich über dem Ort stehen blieb, wo das Kind war. Als sie den Stern sahen, waren sie überglücklich. Sie gingen in das Haus und fanden dort das Kind und seine Mutter Maria. Da warfen sie sich vor ihm nieder und erwiesen ihm Ehre. Dann holten sie die Schätze hervor, die sie mitgebracht hatten, und gaben sie ihm Gold, Weihrauch und Möhre. In einem Traum erhielten sie da, daraufhin die Weisung, nicht zu Herodes zurückzukehren. Deshalb reisten sie auf einem anderen Weg wieder in ihr Land. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Y el verbo se hizo carne y habitó entre nosotros. En die woord het vlees geworden en het onder ons gewoon. Tao, chengwei rou shen, shen huo zai wumen chong jian. Et la parole se fait homme. Elle a habité parmi nous. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth.